Section 30 of Expository Thoughts on the Gospel of St. John, Volume 2, by J.C. Ryle. Chapter 12, verses 44 to 50, Dignity of Christ, Certainty of a Judgment to Come. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain, read by Marianne. John, chapter 12, verses 44 to 50. Jesus cried and said, he that believeth in me, believeth not on me, but on him that sent me. And he that seeth me, seeth him that sent me. I am come a light into the world, that whosoever believeth on me should not abide in darkness. And if any man hear my words, and believe not, I judge him not. For I came not to judge the world, but to save the world. He that rejecteth me, and receiveth not my words, hath one that judgeth him, the word that I have spoken, the same shall judge him in the last day. For I have not spoken of myself, but the Father which sent me, he gave me a commandment what I should say and what I should speak, and I know that his commandment is life everlasting. Whatsoever I speak, therefore, even as the Father said unto me, so I speak. These verses throw light on two subjects which we can never understand too well. Our daily peace and our practice of daily watchfulness over ourselves are closely connected with a clear knowledge of these two subjects. One thing shown in these verses is the dignity of our Lord Jesus Christ. We find him saying, He that seeth me, seeth him that sent me. I am come a light into the world, that whosoever believeth on me should not abide in darkness. Christ's oneness with the Father and Christ's office are clearly exhibited in these words. Concerning the unity of the Father and the Son, we must be content to believe reverently what we cannot grasp mentally or explain distinctly. Let it suffice us to know that our Savior was not like the prophets and patriarchs, a man sent by God the Father, a friend of God, and a witness for God. He was something far higher and greater than this. He was, in his divine nature, essentially one with the Father, and in seeing him, men saw the Father that sent him. This is a great mystery but a truth of vast importance to our souls. He that casts his sins on Jesus Christ by faith is building on a rock. Believing on Christ, he believes not merely on him, but on him that sent him. Concerning the office of Christ, there can be little doubt that in this place he compares himself to the sun. Like the sun, he has risen on this sin-darkened world with healing on his wings and shines for the common benefit of all mankind. Like the sun, he is the great source and center of all spiritual life, comfort, and fertility. Like the sun, he illuminates the whole earth, and no one need miss the way to heaven if he will only use the light offered for his acceptance. Forever let us make much of Christ in all our religion. We can never trust him too much, follow him too closely, or commune with him too unreservedly. He has all power in heaven and earth. He is able to save to the uttermost all who came to God by him. No one can pluck us out of the hand of him who is one with the Father. He can make all our way to heaven bright and plain and cheerful, like the morning sun cheering the traveler. Looking unto him, we shall find light in our understandings, see light on the path of life we have to travel, feel light in our hearts, and find the days of darkness, which will come sometimes, stripped of half their gloom. Only let us abide in him and look to him with a single eye. There is a mine of meaning in his words, If thine eye be single, thy whole body shall be full of light. Matthew chapter 6, verse 22. 
Another thing shown in these verses is the certainty of a judgment to come. We find our Lord saying, He that rejecteth me, and receiveth not my words, hath one that judgeth him, the word that I have spoken, the same shall judge him in the last day. There is a last day. The world shall not always go on as it does now. Buying and selling, sowing and reaping, planting and building, marrying and giving in marriage, all this shall come to an end at last. There is a time appointed by the Father when the whole machinery of creation shall stop, and the present dispensation shall be changed for another. It had a beginning, and it shall also have an end. Banks shall at length close their doors for ever. Stock exchanges shall be shut. Parliaments shall be dissolved. The very sun, which since Noah's flood has done his daily work so faithfully, shall rise and set no more. Well would it be if we thought more of this day. Rent days, birthdays, wedding days are often regarded as days of absorbing interest, but they are nothing compared to the last day. There is a judgment coming. Men have their reckoning days, and God will at last have his. The trumpet shall sound. The dead shall be raised incorruptible. The living shall be changed. All of every name and nation and people and tongue shall stand before the judgment seat of Christ. The book shall be opened and the evidence brought forth. Our true character will come out before the world. There will be no concealment, no evasion, no false coloring. Everyone shall give account of himself to God, and all shall be judged according to their works. The wicked shall go away into everlasting fire, and the righteous into life eternal. These are awful truths, but they are truths and ought to be told. No wonder that the Roman governor Felix trembled when Paul the prisoner discoursed about righteousness, temperance, and judgment to come. Acts chapter 24 verse 25. Yet the believer in the Lord Jesus Christ has no cause to be afraid. For him, at any rate, there is no condemnation, and the last assize need have no terrors. The bias of his life shall witness for him, while the shortcomings of his life shall not condemn him. It is the man who rejects Christ, and will not hear his call to repentance. He is the man who in the judgment day will have reason to be cast down and afraid. Let the thought of judgment to come have a practical effect on our religion. Let us daily judge ourselves with righteous judgment that we may not be judged and condemned of the Lord. Let us so speak and so act as men who will be judged by the law of liberty. Let us make conscience of all our hourly conduct, and never forget that for every idle word we must give an account at the last day. In a word, let us live like those who believe in the truth of judgment, heaven, and hell. So living, we shall be Christians indeed and in truth, and have boldness in the day of Christ's appearing. Let the judgment day be the Christian's answer and apology when men ridicule him as too strict, too precise, and too particular in his religion. Irreligion may do tolerably well for a season, so long as a man is in health and prosperous and looks at nothing but this world. But he who believes that he must give an account to the judge of quick and dead at his appearing and kingdom will never be content with an ungodly life. He will say, There is a judgment. I can never serve God too much. Christ died for me. I can never do too much for him. Notes, John chapter 12, verses 44 to 50. Verse 44. Jesus cried and said, The connection between the address which begins here and the preceding verse is not very plain or easy to understand. 
Some think that it is a continuation of the address which ended at the 36th verse, and that John's comment and explanation in the last seven verses must be regarded entirely as a parenthesis. This is rather an awkward supposition when we look at the 36th verse and see at the end, these words spake Jesus, and departed and did hide himself. Unless we suppose that, as he was walking away, he cried and said, He that believeth on me, etc., the connection seems incapable of proof. Yet it appears most unlikely that our Lord would have said such things as he was departing. Others, as Theophylact, think that the address before us is an entirely new and distinct one, and delivered on a different day from that ending at the 36th verse, viz. on the Tuesday, Wednesday, or Thursday in Passion Week. This certainly appears to me the least difficult view of the subject. It would then mean that the day after the miracle of the voice from heaven, Jesus appeared again publicly in Jerusalem, and cried and said. However, it is useless to deny that the abrupt manner in which the verse before us and the following verses come in is a difficulty, and one which we know not exactly how to explain. One thing only is very clear. This was probably one of the last public discourses which our Lord delivered in Jerusalem, and forms a kind of conclusion to his ministry in that city. It is a short but solemn winding up of all his public testimony to the Jews. It deserves notice that some, as Titman, Steer, Olshausen, Tholuck, Bloomfield, and Alford, consider the whole of the passage, from verse 44 to the end of the chapter, to be not the words of Jesus Christ, but a statement of John the Baptist himself concerning the doctrine Jesus taught throughout his ministry, and especially at Jerusalem. From this view, however, I strongly dissent. The beginning, Jesus cried, etc., seems utterly inconsistent with the theory. There seems no special necessity for adopting it. A plain reader of the chapter would never dream of it. It is worth remarking that the Greek expression, he cried, is very seldom applied to our Lord in the New Testament. It is found in Matthew chapter 27, verse 50, Mark chapter 15, verse 39, John chapter 7, verses 28 to 37, and here. In every instance it means a loud cry, such as any one uses to call attention to what he has said. Flacius thinks that the address beginning here is a kind of peroration and summing up of all our Lord's public teaching to the Jews. In it he repeats the proclamation of his own divine office and dignity, the purpose for which he came, to be a light, the danger of neglecting his testimony, the certainty of a final judgment, and the direct procession of his doctrine from the Father. He that believeth me, him that sent me. This remarkable expression seems meant to proclaim, for the last time, the great truth so often insisted on by our Lord, the entire unity between himself and the Father. Once more Jesus declares that there is such a complete and mysterious oneness between himself and the Father, that he who believes on him believes not only on him, but on him that sent him. Of course, the sentence cannot literally mean that the man who believes on Christ does not believe on Christ, but according to a mode of speech not uncommon in the New Testament, our Lord taught that all who, in obedience to his call, put their trust in him, would find that they were not trusting in the Son only, but in the Father also. In short, to trust in the Son, the sent Savior of sinners, is to trust also in the Father, who sent him to save. The Son and the Father cannot be divided, though they are distinct persons in the Trinity, and faith in the Son gives an interest in the Father. Compare John chapter 5, verse 24. He that heareth my word, and believeth on him that sent me, and First Peter chapter 1, verse 21. Who by him do believe in God. 
to draw a wide line of separation between the father and the son, as some do, and to represent the father as an angry being whom the son appeases, is very poor theology, and the high road to tritheism. The true doctrine is that the Godhead of Father, Son, and Holy Ghost is one, and that in the unity of the Godhead there are three persons, and yet that there is such an entire unity between the persons that he who believes in the Son believes also in the Father. Zwingle thinks the latent idea is, do not think it a small and insignificant thing to believe on me. To believe on me is the same thing as believing on God the Father, and to know me is to know the Father. Bucer seems to think that the address in this verse was meant to encourage those who believed Christ to be the Messiah, but were afraid of confessing him, to come forward boldly and acknowledge their belief. Poole says that in like manner God says to Samuel, They have not rejected thee, but have rejected me, meaning not thee alone. 1 Samuel chapter 8 verse 7 Verse 45 And he, seeth me, seeth him that sent me. This deep and mysterious verse proclaims even more distinctly than the last verse the unity of the Father and the Son. It cannot mean that anyone who saw Christ with his bodily eyes did, in so seeing, behold the first person of the Trinity. Such beholding, we are distinctly told, is impossible. He is one whom no man hath seen or can see. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 16. What our Lord seems to mean is this. He that seeth me seeth not me only, as an ordinary man or a prophet, like John the Baptist. In seeing me he beholds one who is one with the Father, the brightness of his glory, and the express image of his person. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3. Of course our Lord did not literally mean, He that sees me does not see me, but he meant, He that sees me sees not only me, but through me and by me he sees him that sent me, for we cannot be divided. The divinity of Jesus Christ seems incontrovertibly proved by this verse and the preceding one. If to believe in Christ is to believe in the Father, and to see Christ is to see the Father, then Jesus Christ must be equal with the Father, very and eternal God. The supposition of some, that the first seeth in this verse means nothing more than seeth by faith, appears rather incredible. At this rate, the verse would only be a repetition of the one preceding it, I prefer the idea that seeth means literally seeth with his bodily eyes. Yet Bengal says that seeth refers to that vision which faith accompanies and compares it to John chapter 6 verse 40. The object our Lord had in view in this and in the preceding verse appears to have been twofold. It was partly to proclaim once more the unity of himself and the Father. It was partly to encourage all believers in himself for the last time before he was crucified. Let them know that in resting their souls on him, they were resting not on him alone, who died on Calvary, but on one who was one with the Father, and therefore were resting on the Father. Chrysostom observes on the expression, Seeth him that sent me. What then? Is God a body? By no means. The seeing of which Jesus here speaks is that of the mind, thence showing the consubstantiality. Barnes observes that this language could not have been used about any mere man. To say it of Paul or Isaiah would have been blasphemy. Verse 46. I am come a light into the world, etc. In this sentence, our Lord proclaims once more the great end and object of his coming into the world. He does it by using his favorite figure of light, comparing himself to the sun. I have come into a world full of darkness and sin, 
to be the source and center of life, peace, holiness, and happiness to mankind, so that everyone who receives and believes in me may be delivered from darkness and walk in full light. Let us note that the form of language used here seems to teach that our Lord existed before he entered the world. The saints are the light of the world, but they do not come a light into the world. This could only be said of Christ, who was light before his incarnation, just as the sun exists and shines before it rises above the eastern horizon. Let us note that our Lord's language seems to teach that he came to be a common Savior and Messiah for all mankind, just as the sun shines for the good of all. It is as though he said, I have arisen on the world like the sun in the firmament of heaven, in order that everyone who is willing to believe in me should be delivered from spiritual darkness and be enabled to walk in the light of spiritual life. Once more we may remember that none could give such a majestic description of his mission, but one who knew and felt that he was very God. We never find Moses, or John the Baptist, or Paul, or Peter using such language as this. The quantity of precious truth taught and implied in this verse is very noteworthy. The world is in darkness. Christ is the only light. Faith is the only way to have interest in Christ. He that believeth no longer abides in darkness, but has spiritual light. He that does not believe remains and continues in a state of darkness, the prelude to hell. The expression, not abide in darkness, seems to have a latent reference to those Jews who were convinced of Christ's messiahship, but were afraid to confess him openly. Such persons are here exhorted not to remain, stick fast, and continue in darkness. Burgon remarks on this verse, This verse shows that, one, Christ existed before his incarnation, even as the sun exists before it appears above the eastern hills. Two, that Christ is the one Savior of the world, even as there is only one Son. Three, that he came not for one nation, but for all, as the sun shines for all the world. Verse 47. And if any, hear, believe not. Having shown the privilege of those who believe in him, our Lord now shows the danger and ruin of those who hear his teaching and yet believe not. I judge him not. These words can only mean, I judge him not now. To put more on them would contradict the teaching of other places, where Christ is spoken of as the judge of all at the last day. Our Lord's meaning evidently is to teach that his first advent was not for judgment, but for salvation, not to punish and smite as a conqueror, but to heal and save as a physician. For I am not, judge, save the world. These words are an expansion and explanation of the preceding sentence, I judge him not. They are evidently meant to correct the Jewish impression that Messiah was to come only to judge, to execute vengeance, to smite down his enemies, and to punish his adversaries. This impression arose from misapplied views of the second advent and the judgment yet to come. Our Lord, for the last time, declares that he came for no such purpose. Wicked as unbelief was, he did not come to punish it now. He came not as a judge at his first advent, but as a savior. We must take care, however, that we do not misinterpret the sentence. It affords no countenance to the dangerous doctrine of universal salvation. It does not mean that Christ came in order to actually save from hell all the inhabitants of the whole world. Such a meaning would flatly contradict many other plain passages of Scripture. What, then, does it mean? 
It means that our Lord came at his first advent not to be a judge, but a savior, not to inflict punishment, but to provide mercy. He came to provide salvation for all the world, so that anyone in the world may be saved. But no one gets any benefit from this salvation excepting those that believe. The true key to the meaning of the sentence is the contrast between Christ's first coming and his second one. The first was to set up a throne of grace. The second will be to set up a throne of judgment. The expression in John chapter 3 verse 17 is precisely parallel. God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. If it were lawful to coin a word, the true exposition of this sentence would be, I came that the world might be salvable. But while I say all this, I am unable to see how such expressions as this, and John chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, can possibly be reconciled with an extreme view of particular redemption. To say, on the one hand, that Christ's death is efficacious to none but the elect and believers is strictly true. Not all men are finally saved by Christ. There is a hell, and unbelievers and impenitent people will be found there. But to say, on the other hand, that in no sense did Christ do anything at all for the whole world, but that he did everything for the elect alone, seems to me utterly irreconcilable with this text. Surely Christ came to provide a salvation sufficient for the whole world. I am aware that the advocates of an extreme view of particular redemption say that the world here does not mean the world, but the elect of all nations, as compared to the Jews. But this view is not satisfactory, and looks very like an evasion of the plain meaning of words. Why the same Greek word is rendered by our English translators judge in this verse and condemn in the parallel place in John chapter 3, verse 17, it is not easy to see. Verse 48. He that rejecteth me rejecteth not my words, judgeth him. In this verse, our Lord declares positively the future judgment and condemnation of those who reject him and refuse to believe his teaching. The word we render, rejecteth, is only used here in St. John's Gospel. The idea is that of despising, setting at naught. See Luke chapter 10, verse 16. The person described is one who despises and sets at naught Christ himself after seeing him and deliberately refuses to acknowledge him as the Messiah in spite of all the evidence of his miracles. He is also one who will not receive and take into his heart the doctrines preached by Christ. In short, he despises his person and refuses to believe his teaching. Such a man will find at last, though I punish him not now, that there is a judgment and condemnation of him. He will not find that rejection of me and his unbelief will go unpunished. He has a judge prepared already. There is one already, though he knows it not, who will witness against him and condemn him. The word I have spoken, judge him, last day. Our Lord here declares that the things he publicly preached to the Jews while he was upon earth would witness finally against those who did not believe at the last day and be their condemnation. They will not then be able to deny that they were words of wisdom, words of mercy, words subversive to their false view, words fully explaining Christ's kingdom, words entirely in accordance with the scriptures. And the result will be that they will be speechless. The witness of Christ's words will be unanswerable and in consequence of that witness, they will be condemned. We see here that the words of those who speak for God are not thrown away, because they seem not believed at the time. Christ's words, though despised and rejected by the Jews, did not fall to the ground. 
Those whom they did not save, they will condemn. There will be a resurrection of all faithful sermons at the last day. Great is the responsibility of preachers. Their words are always doing good or adding to the condemnation of the lost. They are a savor of life to some and of death to others. Great is the responsibility of hearers. They may ridicule and despise sermons, but they will find to their cost at last that they must give account of all that they hear. The very sermons they now despise may be witnesses against them to their eternal ruin. Let us note that our Lord speaks of judgment and the last day as great realities. Let us take care that we always account them such and live accordingly. The Christian's best answer to those who ridicule his religion is to say, I believe in a judgment and a last day. Let us note that condemnation is taken for granted, if not directly expressed, as the portion of some at the last day. Then let us not listen to those who say that there is no future punishment, and that all persons of all characters, both good and bad, are at last going to heaven. Zwingle remarks that the expression, my word shall judge, is parallel to such expressions as, the law puts a man to death, though it is not actually the law, but the executioner that does it. The law only shows him to be worthy of death. So the works and words of Christ will show the unbelieving to be worthy of judgment and condemnation. Verse 49, For I have not spoken of myself. In these words, our Lord once more, as if for the last time, declares that mighty truth which we find so often in St. John, the intimate union between himself and his Father. I have not spoken of myself, of my own independent mind, and without concert with my Father in heaven. The object of saying this is evident. Our Lord would have the Jews know what a serious sin it was to refuse his words and not believe them. In so doing, men did not refuse the words of a mere man or a prophet like Moses or John the Baptist. They were refusing the words of him who never spake alone, but always in closest union with the Father. To refuse to receive the words of Christ was to reject not merely his words, but the words of God the Father. Here, as in many other places in St. John's Gospel, the Greek does not mean, I have spoken concerning myself, but out of or from myself. But the Father gave commandment speak. Here our Lord explains and enforces more fully what he said of not speaking from himself. He declares that when he came into the world, the Father gave him a commandment or a commission as to what he should say and speak to men. The things that he had spoken were the result of the eternal counsels of the ever-blessed Trinity. The works that he had done were works which the Father gave him to do. The words which he spoke were words which the Father gave him to speak. Both in his doing and speaking, nothing was left to chance, unforeseen, unprovided, unpremeditated. All was arranged by perfect wisdom, both his words and his works. When we read of the Father sending Christ and giving Christ a commandment, we must carefully dismiss from our minds all idea of any inferiority to God the Father on the part of God the Son. The expressions are used in condescension to our weak faculties to convey the idea of perfect oneness. We are not speaking of the relation that exists between two human beings like ourselves, but between persons of the divine trinity. The sending of the Son was the result of the eternal counsel of the blessed trinity in which Father, Son, and Holy Ghost are co-equal and co-eternal. The eternal Son was as willing to be sent as the eternal Father was to send him. 
The commandment given by the Father to the Son as to what he should teach and do was not a commandment in which the Son had no part but to obey. It was simply the charge or commission arranged in the covenant of redemption by all three persons in the Trinity, which the Son was as willing to execute as the Father was willing to give. The distinction between say and speak in the Greek is not very clear. Bergon thinks the phrase is meant to include every class of discourse, as well as the words of familiar intercourse, as the grave and solemn addresses. But I am not satisfied that this can be proved. Alapati says that to say is to teach and publish a thing gravely, and to speak is to utter a thing familiarly. Bengal, however, distinguishes them in precisely the contrary way. There certainly seems to be an intention in the verse to refer the Jews to the well-known words of Deuteronomy concerning the prophet like unto Moses. I will raise up a prophet from among their brethren, like unto thee, and will put my words into his mouth, and he shall speak unto them all that I shall command him. Our Lord's hearers, familiar from their infancy with Scripture, would see at once that Jesus claimed to be the promised prophet. The Father's words were in his mouth. He spoke what was commanded him. See Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 18. Verse 50. And I know his commandment, life everlasting. The meaning of this sentence seems to be, I know, whether you like to believe it or not, that this message, commandment, or commission, which I have from my Father, is life everlasting to all who receive it and believe. You, in your blindness, See no beauty or excellence in the message I bring and the doctrine I preach, but I know that in rejecting it you are rejecting life everlasting. Thus Peter says to our Lord, Thou hast the words of eternal life, John chapter 6, verse 68. That is, we know that thou hast a commission to proclaim and publish eternal life. Thus our Lord says, The words that I speak are spirit and life, John chapter 6, verse 63. Poole and others say this sentence means, I know that the way to life everlasting is to keep his commandments, but I cannot think that this is the meaning. Hall paraphrases the sentence, The doctrine by which his commandment I preach unto you is that which will surely bring you to everlasting life. Whatsoever I speak, as Father, so I speak. This sentence seems intended to wind up our Lord's public discourses to the unbelieving Jews at Jerusalem. Whatsoever things I am teaching now, or have spoken to you all through my ministry, are things which the Father gave to me to speak to you. I am only speaking to you what the Father said to me. If, therefore, you reject or refuse my message, know once more, for the last time, that you are rejecting a message from God the Father himself. I speak nothing but what the Father said to me. If you despise it, you are despising the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob." Let us remember that the holy boldness of this last verse should be a pattern to every minister and preacher of the gospel. Such a man ought to be able to say confidently, I know and am persuaded that the message I bring is life everlasting to all who believe it, and that in saying what I do, I say nothing but what God has showed me in his word. End of section 30 and end of volume 2 of Expository Thoughts on the Gospel of St. John by J.C. Ryle